Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 214 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Tom King, the founder and CEO of Staviva Brands, founded in 1999. Tom is, quote, a part CEO, part personal development wonk, and part biohacker information geek. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing terrific, Jordan, and I really appreciate you uh, having me on your podcast. It's a, it's a terrific honor for me. Sure. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, so the, the pleasure is mutual. Let me ask the first question here. What are you currently doing? Or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? That's a great. That's a, that's a really, really great question. Um, well, I founded uh, Staviva Brands in 1999 with the intention of of making an impact on metabolic disease. And what I mean by metabolic disease is uh, what I call diabetes, and that's diabetes and obesity and all of the you know the disease and uh and problems that are associated with those conditions mm-hmm. why why were those issues particularly important to you have you suffered from them or have you known someone who suffered from them or you just read about it in the news and figured that it needed a solution and you were the man to, to do the job <laughs> i grew up on a ranch in colorado and i i was always fascinated with with health and fitness um, and how eating more naturally played a role in that. I had, additionally, I've always, my weight has always really fluctuated. Um, I call it yo-yo weight. Um, I've gone from being 35, 40 pounds overweight to being, you know, in really great shape. And I really had this deep driving desire to find out what the heck was going on with that. So before we get into a wonderful discussion with that, which I uh, eagerly anticipate about obesity and and and, uh, and the public health crisis that it poses to the United States, um, I'd like you to define for our listeners, in case they don't know, what Staviva Brands is uh, and what the stevia leaf is, what uh, the uh, monk fruit is, and just give mm-hmm. us a little sense of what your products are and how you mm-hmm. came to develop um well stevia uh the stevia plant is really it's indigenous to uh to south america and the leaf itself is about 25 times sweeter than sugar um and when i started the company in 1999 i i i experienced the leaps from from a friend of mine who'd come back from paraguay and I started thinking there's got to be a way to naturally extract the sweet constituents from the leaf. Um, so it took me about five years to find like a really clean water extraction method to get those uh, to get those sweet sweet constituents out of the leaf, which are called uh, glycosides. And um, yeah, once I found that, then I felt like I had found the natural version of of NutraSweet and mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, the FDA wasn't allowing stevia extract into the United States um, 
as a sweetener. It could be brought into the country as a dietary supplement, but it sort of coincided with the with the FDA approving aspartame. So these two things sort of happened at the same time. Um, so <clears throat> since since discovering the stevia extract, and it's about 200 times sweeter than sugar, I I knew that it was going to that I was going to have to modify it or add other other properties to it to make it usable for the consumer because the consumer isn't going to be able to use something that's 200 times sweeter than sugar without there being sort of that margin of error. And when you're mm-hmm. when you've got a margin when you've got something 200 times sweeter than sugar, mm-hmm. adding just a little bit extra, you'd be like, what happened here? It could just be you know it could be too sweet. So, um, I'm sorry, was it 25 times sweeter than sugar or 200 times? The leaf, the actual raw leaf, is mm-hmm. 25 times sweeter than sugar. But when uh-huh. we take those leaves, dry them, crush them into a powder, and then dissolve them into a water slurry, um, the sweet constituents from those leaves float to the top. And those glycosides, which are those sweet constituents, those are 200 times 200 to 250 times sweeter than sugar, <clears throat> and those are the, and those are the, uh, th- that's the sweetener that we, we sell to the public, but we mostly sell to manufacturers that are looking to uh, employ clean label sugar reduction in their finished products. So, were indigenous communities using the stevia leaf as a sweetener for potentially millennia, and? No one thought to commercialize it until you came along. Um, I think there were other companies that had dabbled in it, but it, before 1999, uh, stevia wasn't really uh, wasn't really an option in in the United States. Um, I know that it, they used it some in Japan, um, but it was very limited. And uh, you're totally correct about indigenous people of South America using stevia um not only for its its sweet its sweet technical effect mm-hmm. but more importantly it 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 was used to balance blood sugar and it has some natural um antimicrobial properties so they were using it as real medicine so speaking about japan and and, and also juxtaposing that to the food and drug administration in the united states you said the FDA uh, banned the import of stevia as a sweetener. Now, Japan has banned artificial sweeteners from the entire nation, yet they are one of the highest consumers of, Stev- of Steviva brands, products. So can you take a moment and speak about why you suppose uh, Japan does not classify Steviva as an artificial sweetener and therefore allows Steviva products to be in there when they might ban aspartame? Uh, but the FDA, on the other hand, had banned Stiviva as a sweetener. And do they continue to ban Stiviva as a sweetener? Are you classified as something else? <laughs> this, this is, you're going to go right there with it. I like it. Um, well, <clears throat> so uh, Stevia is not considered an art, artificial sweetener. It, it's mm-hmm. considered a natural sweetener. And um, I, I spent... I started the company in 1999, and I spent from 1999 to 2008 lobbying the FDA to approve uh, to approve stevia as 
as a sweetener and not just having it sequestered to uh, a dietary supplement. In 2000, in 2008, Cargill, um, a multi-million dollar company that multi-billion dollar company that I'm sure your audience is very familiar with, um, lobbied the FDA um, for uh, grass status, which means generally rega- regarded as safe. Uh, they lobbied the FDA uh, for their branded stevia called Truvia, um, and the FDA did approve it. Um, at that point, then uh, we were able to, I guess, sort of ride the long tail of of, uh, of Cargill. Uh, I mean, our process is different, um, you know, than than theirs. We use a natural extraction process. And is Truvia uh, also mean, from the stevia leaf? It is. It is. Okay. And so it's a competitor. They are a competitor, and okay. um, but you know, deep pockets have uh, have a lot of influence with the with the FDA. There's that's that's no secret. And I mean, when you look at a country like like Japan, I mean, I guess it begs the question of you know their version of of the FDA um, and our version of the FDA. Which one is really working in the interest of their, you know, of their public, um, and which which may be uh, working in the interest of big corporations? Would it be fair to say that the stevia leaf came to the attention of Cargill based upon your work with Steviva Brands? Because you said earlier that there weren't many companies using stevia leaves as sweeteners. And then you said Cargill comes in and gets Truvia approved. They have a different process. So would it be fair to say that your product preceded Cargill's product and that they were able to come along and, and, and use their deep pockets to lobby the FDA successfully as a result of your initial pioneering work in, with that lease? I am not sure if it was the result of my, of my pioneering uh, stevia, um, mm-hmm. but I think that what you say is, is – is very is very accurate um you know i we we used to buy a a product called erythritol from cargill um and subsequently we we stopped once they uh once they released truvia um i did my company inspire them to look to look into it I I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I don't work this for Cargill. This seems like an so. interesting tale of drama. But <laughs> let's move forward into this. Thank uh, you. This diabetes epidemic that you uh, mm. uh, using a word that you coined, combining the uh, diabetes and obesity. So so America has a health problem, right? The major, there's a significant proportion of Americans who are obese. It's much greater than it ever has been before. Uh, in the 1950s, you just had a whole lot, a smaller proportion of the population that could be classified as obese um, or morbidly obese. Now, of course, that's increased. In the 70s, you had, oh well, it's it's fats and 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 it's butter, so let's let's do margarine. And and of course, uh, we now have even greater obesity. Uh, so it wasn't just fats. Turns out, all right, sugars also contribute greatly to this great uh, public health crisis of of obesity and all this various comorbidities. Can you speak about what America is facing today, the role that sugar and the sugar industry plays in it, potentially the role that Congress plays in subsidizing the sugar industry, and where Stavita fits in? What are you guys doing to try to 
break this chain. I, I think American taste buds prefer have a sweeter palate than, than many other nations and certainly have a sweeter palate than Americans did 50 years ago. Just opine on the role of sugar in our society, especially in light of the growing obesity epidemic. That is a that's a super dense question, <laughs> and and I yeah I mean just um, let me let me start at the beginning. I mean I would I would say that <clears throat> the what we're experiencing with the diabetes epidemic is a pandemic. I think that I. I, it's when you look at 75%, 75% of American uh, males are classified as obese. 60% of American women uh, over 40 are considered obese. And when you look at childhood obesity, the, the sort of the exponential um, growth in childhood obesity uh, that's coming down the pike at us, more than a health situation, I mean, and I know the current administration that we've got now is more, I would say, focused on big money. Um, if they are unable to see what is coming ahead of them, um, they should definitely find another job because when you when you start calculating out, yes, we've got people that are that are obese, we've got people that are suffering from diabetes, but when you look at the if the economic impact that this is going to have in the next two decades, it will pale in comparison to anything that we have uh, that we've encountered so far. It'll bankrupt the healthcare system. Oh, that, our healthcare! Absolutely, our healthcare system is not designed to be able to uh, to be able to handle a pandemic like this. It's just not. Um, when you when you take into consideration all of the sort of ancillary uh, effects of, of diabetes, you know, losing one's toes, losing a foot, um, the inability to work, um, you know, the the inability to be mobile. Um, when you start adding that all up, the the yeah the the economic impact of that is staggering. And you know, you did mention that. You know, the fads of, hey, fat makes you fat or sugar makes you fat. But there was a New, a New York Times article that came out about uh, a month and a half ago exposing the sugar industry um, for hiring media people to create uh, a press sort of blitz on the fact that fat makes you fat and sugar gives you energy which now that people are becoming more aware, it's pretty obvious that fat is what provides energy and that sugar is what uh, sugar is what actually makes you fat, but, but more than that, it causes a disease. Even, even with, um, with dementia and Alzheimer's, those two conditions are now being referred to as type 3 diabetes. Um, because what happens is if you eat a lot of sugar, you know, and your insulin levels are out of control and your body starts going through a state of, of uh, insulin resistance, uh, it, it doesn't allow your brain to, to go into a state of autophagy. And autophagy is where when you're sleeping, the fluid in which your brain uh, sets in um, needs to flush out those dead proteins. And so when those dead proteins 
start accumulating in on your on the surface of your brain that's when you start running into conductivity issues and your brain starts to not to not uh, function properly so um and that is directly that is directly related to uh, a sugar that's high in uh, uh that's a diet that's high in sugar and high in high glycemic carbohydrates and so do, i mean i just want to interject here do americans sure. have a sweeter palate than your market in japan or than americans did in previous generations oh absolutely um you know we our plug-in replacement so we have a plug-in replacement for sucrose, which is table sugar, and that that particular uh, sweetener is 1.8 times sweeter than sugar. So it's almost twice as twice as sweet as sugar. Um, in our foreign sales, uh, people will use half as much. In in domestic sales, people will people will use it as a one for one replacement for. Uh, for sucrose, so I would say that the American palate is roughly uh, is roughly accustomed to things that are twice as sweet as the global market. So we're facing an epidemic. We have potentially a new classification for diabetes type three. You have the majority of adults in the United States being classified as obese, according to your statistics, and we have a palate that increasingly demands sweeter and sweeter foods. Where does Taviva come in? How do you take this palate that wants sweeter products and still at the same time try to reduce the negative impact that sugar has had on our population health? That's a great question. I, where, we, where we play a role is that our sweeteners do not affect blood sugar levels, meaning that our, the majority, by and large, our sweeteners are um, on, are non-nutritive, meaning that your body doesn't digest them as sugar, so it doesn't spike insulin levels, it doesn't affect uh, blood sugar, so it, it you you can have a product or you can have a dessert made with our sweeteners that will actually be sweeter than sugar, but will have almost zero impact uh, on your blood sugar, meaning that then your body can start recovering from insulin resistance um, and your body can start functioning, um, you know, can start functioning the way that it's supposed to. But the biggest take home from this is that we replace sugar with a clean, natural uh, sweetening system. Um, so and it, any of, some of our listeners, I have to do them due justice, due diligence right now. Some may be skeptical, right? Because there's many different sure. companies out there who claim to do many different things. And a lot of people mm -hmm. say, well, if I really just want natural, let me just take the sugar cane, boil it down, and I'll take some domino sugar, and, and that'll be the end of the conversation. What if, if, the, if, if Staviva brand's products don't increase blood sugar and aren't adding to caloric intake, then what exactly – is it doing? It's not water. It's water plus extract from a leaf. So mm -hmm. what is the impact of the stevia leaf and your extract on the human mm -hmm. body? Um, it actually just has a sweet technical effect, meaning that it isn't a sugar. Um, it's a glycoside, and it so it only tastes sweet. It actually isn't – it isn't – sweet like sugar. So sugar, which is a nutritive 
uh, a nutritive sweetener. You know, it's a combination of fructose and glucose. Those are functional. Um, those are functional nutritive sweeteners. They've got calories. You know, they uh, they also have chemical properties that allow them to work. Sort of the alchemy of of baking and cooking, making uh, you know yeasts activate, uh, making pectins activate in jellies and jams. Um, so there is some chemical properties to uh, to sugar that that do cooperate in that in the cooking and baking process. But the trade-off that you get is that it spikes your insulin levels, uh, that it is caloric, so you're adding calories to your diet. You're talking um, about sugar now, right? Talking about talking about sugar, um, and stevia doesn't has zero calories. Uh, zero sugars. It's got a sweet technical effect on the tongue, and that as far as it goes, it doesn't react. It doesn't react with the Maillard um, effect, which is browning and caramelization. Uh, it also doesn't have any viscosity, so it doesn't. It doesn't add to the viscosity of a uh, of a product. It's going to be a little thinner. Um, which you may have noticed with one of our um, liquid sweeteners. So it, it is, it's, it's not digested as a sugar. It just simply passes through your system. What's your uptake with those in the food industry? Do you have chefs and, and major restaurants and culinary schools beginning to use your products? Or how, how, is your, how are your products being received among those who are the experts in taste and culinary arts? Um, I would say with people that, you know, with, uh, with, you know, with chefs, you know, that work, uh, you know, that work in the, you know, in the, the like restaurant industry, we might not have much impact with them, but what we do, we have enormous impact with food technologists and people that work in the R and D department of, of food manufacturers because the FDA um, is changing, changing its its label guidelines uh, for reporting uh, your nu- nutritional statement, so on that nutritional statement, you you now will have to report um, added sugars. Um, and so many of the large um, large food manufacturers are looking for a way to cut those sugars back because, as you can see in you know in Manhattan. They, you know, there's sugar tax on on beverages as, you know, as municipalities start creating these particular sugar taxes, they're going to be looking right to that label statement and taxing right off of added sugars. So So, we've got, hmm, sorry. I'd like to transition to, uh, as as we approach the end of the podcast, uh, I just want to cover a few more topics with you. So Okay, sure. So we've covered uh, what... Stevia leaves are where they come mm-hmm. from, how they're used to produce the Viva brand, how the mm-hmm. Viva brands are uh, a partial solution to uh, both uh, satisfying the sugar craving that Americans have and also addressing our growing uh, chronic disease burden uh, related to weight and sugar intake. Now, shifting a little bit to you, you said, there's a quote from you, and correct me if I'm wrong if you haven't said this, but you aren't doing well unless you're also doing some good. You always must focus on doing the right thing. So I want to ask you, how 
you came about to, I guess, endorse that sort of perspective. And I want to throw a little twist in there. You mm -hmm. are sourcing these leaves potentially from South America. Maybe you grow them in America now. Um, I know that there are many coffee and cocoa producers um, who produce down in South America and Amazon and Brazil and, and other South American nations. And they're very interested in organic, um, in fair trade, and ensuring that the farming communities are, are uh, well-treated and well-paid. Uh, and and that, that sort of ethos, which has been elaborated upon on previous episodes of Public Interest Podcast, seems to be very much aligned with the ethos that you articulated as, as doing well and doing good at the same time. Can you just potentially elaborate on some of your sourcing um, methods and, and fair trade, if that's applicable? And, and if not, just elaborate on, on what sort of good you're trying to do while also trying to do well with this, with this company. Sure, that's, that's another really, really excellent question. Um, we, our leaves, um, our leaves in the beginning were sourced from South America, but what we found is that if we continued to increase the amount of leaves that we were sourcing, that there could have been, there could be that potential that they would start increasing farmland, which meant that it, they would, um, there was the potential of, um, of, of reducing deforestation. Thank you. So we made a decision about five years ago um, that we would contract with uh, with farmers out of China that are actually growing it in greenhouses uh, on already established farmland. And for us, that made sense. We sent our team over to you know to vet the farms, to vet the um, the process in which they were growing in um, with stevia, it's a it's an interesting situation. If you grow it from the seed, you're not going to have a high concentration of those sweet constituents. So you actually have to grow it from a mother plant, meaning that you're uh, you're taking clippings. And in order for that to really be effective, you have to use massive, massive greenhouses. Um, and it made sense for us on an environmental aspect um, for us to uh, start working that in China as opposed to, you know, as opposed to risking deforestation in South America. Um, with that said, I mean, we also have a policy of running all of our vehicles on, you know, on biofuel. Um, you know, we recycle all of our, uh, you know, all of our packaging, um, all of the packaging, new packaging we use is made from recycled materials. Um, you know, and we make sure that we give back to the community and uh, donating, uh, donating money to education, um, you know, and childhood obesity. We have actual gardens uh, on our, um, at our facility that we bring children into to see how their food is grown um, and educate them, you know, on, on better eating and nutrition. That's how we so give back. That, those are wonderful stories, and I'm going to ask you to elaborate them in just a moment uh, with a okay. final question before we conclude this episode. Uh, okay. I'd like to ask you, Tom, to reflect on your years uh, in public service, and I think uh, we've discussed how you've construed your work uh, at Staviva Brands as being in the public interest. So could you elaborate on why it's important not just to pursue profit but also to try to advance the common good for others. 
and then what you suppose your legacy might be once you've come to the conclusion of your career. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I I think it had something to do with how I was raised. I mean, my my grandfather was really a, a terrific mentor to me, and he was a person who always who always believed in giving back. He would give give a person the shirt off of his if his back if if you know if that person needed it. So I was I was just taught you know from an early age to always to be you know generous um, and to live in a state of of gratitude to you know, to give back to society. And I mean, we, you know, we mentor a lot of employees here and part of our, you know, part of our agreement, our mentoring process is that you pay that forward because as you grow somebody, you want them to also grow somebody else. Um, and I just think what this does, is it elevates the human condition. And to me, there's nothing more satisfying. I mean, Owning a business is terrific and, you know, having, you know, a certain amount of financial freedom is, is great as well. But the, the, the true satisfaction that I find is when I impact somebody's life in a positive way. And in the end, the legacy, the legacy I leave behind, which would be hugely important to me, is that I made a difference, you know, I made a difference in the world and that my products um, actually help people regain control over their lives. And that has been Tom King, founder and CEO of Staviva Brands, self-described uh, personal development wonk and biohacker information geek, who speaks about fundamentally helping individuals regain control over their own lives. He advances the public interest uh, by elevating the human condition, uh, living in a state of gratitude, paying it forward. Those are all things that he just said, but what he's really talking about is an issue facing American society, and in fact, a global society, where we've transitioned in the, in the post-World War II era to uh, a decreasing uh, proportion of the population involved in food production and an ever-expanding global population. And as you have more and more uh, commoditization of the food industry and you have mass commercial uh, ag commercial agricultural uh, industry processes creating prepackaged processed foods you move away from natural foods uh, and that he finds that the work that he is doing is something that that will both satisfy the growing demand which has been to some extent artificially induced uh, through marketing efforts by the sugar industry, as he alluded to earlier, and through adv advocacy campaigns uh, the past certain uh, supportive legislation uh, to, to subsidize the sugar industry. But he's interested in, in addressing uh, the public health concerns, which are posing an enormous cost uh, to, to Americans across society, particularly in the healthcare industry. But these costs, as Tom mentioned, are externalized across society, from having uh, amputees uh, receive Medicare disability payments, being unable to work, lowered productivity at work, increased lethargy, uh, and, and in increased medical expenses. So through this uh, profitable for-business company, he has tried to use the Viva brands to satisfy that craving uh, that we have, and at the same, for sweetener, but at the same time, attempt to reduce real sugar intake and therefore have a positive impact on our bodies. And in that way, 
Tom is combining doing well and doing good at the same time. Tom, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. I, I was an honor, and this was a fantastic experience, and thank you for your kind This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review of this podcast on iTunes, and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.